0: Today's episode of Truth and Justice is sponsored by EverAlbum. Ever run out of space on your phone? Check out EverAlbum, a free mobile app that automatically protects your photos on your phone. Easily sync your phone's camera roll, Facebook, Instagram, and Dropbox accounts so your photos are always protected. Exclusively for Truth and Justice listeners, EverAlbum is offering unlimited photo storage for free. Go to everalbum.com slash truth and download on iOS today. I want to thank all of you who participated in the survey this week. The information that you provide in that survey helps us to connect great advertisers with the show and to offer you advertisements that are interesting to you. For any of you who have not already completed the survey, I'd like to ask you one more time to go on to podsurvey.com slash truth and take the very quick five-minute survey. Remember, the survey is kept completely anonymous, and by taking it, you're entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Our advertisers are a critical element to this show as they are the ones that keep this show free. So please this week take a few minutes and go to podsurvey.com slash truth and take the 5-minute survey and enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thank you all for your support. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to thank all of you for being so engaged and so involved in this movement. This episode is a little bit out of the ordinary for me as I'm recording this on Tuesday night, so it's a lot earlier than usual. Normally, I record on Thursday evenings. That way, I have Friday and Saturday to get the post-production done on the episode. But this week, I'm speaking at a conference out of town for the whole weekend. I'm leaving on Friday morning. So when you're listening to this episode on Sunday afternoon, I'll hopefully be on my way back. With that being said, I'm going to make a prediction, and we'll see if it comes true on Sunday when you download the episode. I'm predicting that the Truth and Justice listeners have reached our goal in the GoFundMe campaign. The total project cost to build the new studio before winter rolls in was $15,000. As of this moment, right now, Tuesday night, we are less than $1,000 away from reaching that goal. And my prediction is that by the time you hear this, we will have made it. And I want to thank every single one of you who contributed any amount. The support you've given has been absolutely overwhelming and amazing. I can't believe that we're getting this project done and has been completely funded by all of you thousands of listeners. And as I've mentioned many times before on the show, everyone has their own contribution to this movement. Many have been able to contribute financially tens of thousands of you have been able to contribute by sending your ideas and thoughts and theories into the show. Listeners have provided the music for the show, the logo, the transcripts. I have a listener working on the website. I have many listeners who are lawyers that are offering to provide legal services. And so many of you have just taken a few moments out of your day to just send encouraging words to me. And I can't tell you how much those short emails mean to me. As you can imagine, this is an extremely controversial topic that we're talking about. So I get a lot of intense emails, both for and against what we're doing. And sometimes it's just so nice to open up an email that just says thanks or offers encouraging words. I've had many thank yous for me to pass along to my wife and kids for putting up with me, putting so much time into this. And I have passed those along and thank you all so much for sending those. It has been a bit of a struggle, but thankfully I have an amazing supportive wife that has stood behind this from day one. I could spend an entire episode just throwing out thank yous to all of the wonderful things that all of you have done to keep this movement alive. But as I mentioned, I have a very short week this week, so I want to get right into the content of the show. The last thing that I want to mention before we get started is I want to make a book recommendation to all of you. If any of you are looking for something to read, I want to recommend you to pick up a copy of Chasing Justice by Carrie Max Cook. That's Carrie with a K, K K-E-R-R-Y. I would love for a lot of you to read this book before we move on to our next case. I can't tell you exactly why or what the connection is, but this book will make excellent prerequisite material for you to have some background knowledge on the next case that we'll be discussing. So again, that book is Chasing Justice by Carrie Max Cook. And before any of you ask, no, this is not the case we will be discussing, but there is a tie-in and you'll just have to trust me on that. I want to start today's show off with a listener email. This email is from Rhonda. And Rhonda, I did try to email you back, but there was something wrong with the email address that you entered into the form field on the website. Rhonda writes, Bob, your podcast is wonderful. I definitely feel that Adnan should not have been convicted from the crappy trial. However, I am still unsure of his innocence or guilt. I am unsure of why you are 100% sure of his innocence and why you think it's ignorant for people that think he is guilty. And Rhonda, I want to thank you very much for sending in that email because it gives me an opportunity to clear something up. I actually went back and listened to that statement that I made on last week's episode to make sure that I didn't misspeak. And for any of you that might have been offended by that, I want to make clear what I was saying. I said that there are still people out there that are 100% convinced, without any doubt, that Inanna is guilty. And I describe those people as being willfully ignorant. And while admittedly the insult may have been uncalled for, I still stand by what I said. But I do want to make clear to everyone listening that I don't think it's ignorant to think that Adnan is guilty. I don't think it's ignorant to have suspicions or to question yourself or lean that direction and continue to think that he's guilty. I think that is a healthy thought process. And just because you may disagree with me certainly does not make you ignorant. I'll be the first to tell you that I'm no smarter than the next guy. But in my opinion, anyone that can look at all of the evidence presented and all of the so-called evidence that's been debunked and still have zero doubt that Adnan is guilty, I do believe that that's an ignorant statement. And it is a statement made from a place of extreme bias. Do I believe Adnan is innocent? Yes, I absolutely do. But does that mean that I'm not willing to consider new evidence that might point the other direction? Absolutely not. And to answer the rest of your question, Rhonda, I think over the next several episodes, The reasoning behind my position may become clearer, and I think that a good place to start that conversation is to discuss last week's episode with Jim Clemente on profiling. For any of you that follow Truth and Justice on Twitter, which if you don't, our handle is TruthJusticePod, you'd have seen that this week I tweeted that I think Adnan is included in the suspect field suggested by Jim's profile. A lot of people were up in arms about that. Many people ask me, how could I be 100% sure that Adnan is innocent, and then after speaking with Jim, I consider him a suspect again? And the answer to that is simple. If we are to be true to our purpose, then we have to remember that our mission is to find the truth. The mission of Truth and Justice is not to free Adnan Syed. The mission is to find the truth. As I stated at the end of that episode, all of these interviews and all of these experts we've consulted have not been for nothing. This show is not about entertainment. All of these people that have expertise in different areas of police tactics were interviewed for a purpose. And that purpose is that they can offer insight into this case. So when I brought Jim Clementi on the show to give a profile, I did it because I believe he is an expert. I believe he had information that could be helpful to this investigation. So in doing so, it would be completely disingenuous for me to reject anything he said that didn't fit my theory of the case. With that being said... In my opinion, Jim's profile best fits two suspects. Those two suspects are Adnan and Don. In considering Jim's level of expertise, his experience, and his training, when he gave me a profile that included Adnan, there's no other choice but to investigate Adnan again. If nothing else, he deserves another look. Because if I didn't take Jim's input, then what was the purpose of having him on the show? And the truth of the matter is, before I ever spoke with Jim, before I heard his profile, and for those of you that have been asking, the first time that I heard Jim's profile was the night I recorded. I had no idea what he was going to say. But before he said anything, I expected anon to fit his profile. And so the easy thing to do would have been just to not have him on the show, not take the risk of him giving information that might be contrary to my theory. Which would have been easy enough to do, considering I had to wake up at 1 o'clock in the morning to record the interview just hours before the show was aired in order to get it done. But I wanted to hear what Jim had to say. And after hearing his profile, I think the information that he gave us could be critically important to this investigation. So let's break down the profile. The nuts and bolts of Jim's profile of the unsub is that the crime would have been committed by a younger person. Someone inexperienced with crime and impulsive his preliminary profile suggests that the unsub would probably have a higher level of intelligence, and given the nature of the crime, possibly someone that is very neat and meticulous in life, especially with things that are visible to the outside person. And the preliminary profile also suggests that the person that murdered Hay is someone that she had a known relationship with. So, based on that profile, we're looking for a young person, fairly intelligent, neat and tidy, and that has a known relationship with Hay. And then you also factor that in with the victimology from the beginning of the interview. When Jim assessed Hay's victimology, he determined risk factors. Given her circumstances, he believes that the person that would most likely have access to Hay in order to murder her would have been someone she knew. And that coupled with the attempted concealment of the body led him to deduce that the most likely scenario is indeed someone that had a known relationship to Hay. So if you didn't pick up on some of those things from that interview, I would definitely go back and listen to it again. Personally, I was there for the interview, obviously, and I've listened to it four different times already, and it's only Tuesday. Jim is a fascinating, extremely intelligent person, and you can't just take one thing that he said out of context. You have to listen to the totality of everything that he said, and then you'll see how he came up with the profile that he landed on. And I should mention again that Jim considered that a preliminary profile. And that's because of the fact that he wasn't on the crime scene. He didn't have all of the police files. He was working with limited resources by himself on a short schedule. And when I say he didn't have all the police files, Jim actually has all of the case files. He has everything. But in order to give a neutral, unbiased profile... He had all that information sent to his assistant and had his assistant filter what he looked at. So he knows nothing about any of the suspects. He only wanted to see elements of the crime, burial, and the victimology of Hay. So considering all of that, let me take a few moments and talk about profiling as a science. A lot of people damn near lost their minds after hearing that profile. People who believe Adnan is guilty were jumping up and down because he was included. People that believe he's innocent were either devastated by the profile or they were pointing fingers at Don. And a lot of people who the profile didn't fit their theory on the case were quick to jump out and shoot out a bunch of articles and statements about how profiling is not an exact science or not an accepted science or that it's not accurate. I had several emails and tweets telling me that we shouldn't convict a non or convict Don based on a profile. Well, the fact is that no one is doing that. It would be absolutely ridiculous to arrest someone or declare someone guilty based on a profile, much less a preliminary profile. So what is a profile? A profile is a tool. That's all. It's another tool in our investigator's toolbox. And much like any other tool, it isn't required or useful for every job that we do. Profilers are typically brought in in cases where you don't have physical evidence, you don't have any eyewitnesses, you don't have any reliable witnesses, and essentially, you have nowhere to start. That's what a profile is. It's a starting point. And as Jim said on the show, this is exactly the type of case where profilers would be brought in. Once Hay's body had been found, and before Jay had been brought in, according to the official record, the police really did have nowhere to start. And personally, I believe that if Jay was coerced, that there's your reason right there. Take Jay out of the equation for a minute, and what do you have? You have nothing. Sure, there was DNA on the scene, and there were hair samples on the scene, and there were fingerprints in the car, but none of those things were ever tested. And I have some theories about that that I'll discuss at the end of the show. But without testing any of that evidence, and to be quite honest, I think most likely, even if they did test the evidence, it wouldn't have pointed them in any clear direction. Unless they got some of the suspects to volunteer their DNA or their fingerprints or got a warrant to do so, I seriously doubt that the killer had DNA or fingerprints on file. So this is the type of case where a behavioral analysis unit would be brought in. And their job is not to find the guilty person. Their job is all about probability and statistics. They look at the crime scene. They look at the crime itself. They look at victimology. And they generate a profile of who statistically would be the most likely person to have committed the crime. And it's important to point out that the statistical probability of a certain type of unsub to have committed a crime could be 99.9%. But that still means there is a 0.1% chance that it was someone that doesn't fit that profile. And what that means is it's highly unlikely that that person committed the crime, but it still very well could be that person. So the purpose of the profile, not just in this case, but in any case, is to narrow the subject field down and give you a place to start. When you have no clear suspects, the profiler will give you the statistically most likely type of person who could have committed the crime. And from there, the investigating agency in this case the Baltimore Police Department, would look at their known subjects and narrow down which of those subjects fit the profile. And that doesn't mean they slap cuffs on those people and throw them into jail. It means those are the people that they should investigate further, and nothing more. In our case, we have a very unique set of circumstances. And that unique set of circumstances is this. We have had hundreds of thousands of people investigating every nook and cranny of this case for nearly a year now. We have conducted an investigation that is leaps and bounds above anything nearly any police department has ever done for any crime. In reality, no one digs as deeply into a case as we have dug. So we have the advantage of already having an extremely thorough investigation underway before the behavioral analysis is completed. So the situation that we find ourselves in is something similar to a Venn diagram. And For those of you that don't remember what a Venn diagram is, it's two circles that overlap. Think of one circle as being all of the information on all of the possible suspects that we've investigated. Then you have another circle that contains the elements of the preliminary profile that Jim gave us last week. With those two circles slightly overlapping, the part in the middle that includes pieces of both circles are where you would put the elements of both the investigation and the preliminary profile that overlap with each other. So in this case, we have a few people who are still considered legitimate suspects. One of those suspects has to still be Adnan. The mere fact that the only witness in this case has given testimony that Adnan is the one who committed this crime, I think it's only fair to include him in that suspect pool. Adnan had a known relationship with Hay, he was young, he was intelligent, and he fits the other element of the profile, which would be a likely motive of either rage or revenge. And since Adnan and Hay had recently broke up, he has to be included into that category. So Adnan is a suspect, and he fits the profile, so he lands in the overlap. Another suspect is Don. Don also had a known relationship with Hay. He was young. We don't know about his intelligence level. We know that he was a lab tech at Lenscrafters, so I assume he would have to have some level of intelligence in order to do that job. But with all the unknowns about Don, he does fit the profile, and therefore he also lands in the overlap. Another suggestion that's been made to me by several listeners is that Jay is a suspect. And I would certainly agree that Jay is a suspect. Because if Jay was not coerced and the stories he told were his stories, then he most certainly would land in the suspect pool. He appears to know a lot about this crime and he's extremely inconsistent in explaining how Adnan did it. So that does leave him in the category of suspect. However, I do not believe that Jay fits the profile, at least not from what we know. I don't believe that Jay had what would be considered a known relationship with Hay. At best, Jay had met Hay a few times, he attended the same school as Hay, may have had some of the same classes as Hay, but he was not someone that Hay hung out with. They did not have a relationship, so to speak. And while rage and revenge are pretty broad categories for motive, you would have to contrive a pretty specific set of circumstances where Hay would have the ability to trigger rage in Jay. Now again, these are statistical probabilities, so that doesn't mean it's impossible, and I'm not writing Jay off as a suspect, but as we go on, you'll see how this process goes and you'll understand what I'm doing here. So I personally would not include Jay in that overlap of our investigation and the profile. I've also had several listeners suggest Jen as a suspect, and as you know from the early episodes of this show, there was a time when I believed Jen to be one of the prime suspects. But as time has gone on and I've looked deeper into the case, I don't think Jen really knows anything about this crime. Her statements are all over the place, some of them are quite ridiculous, and they don't even line up with Jay's. That doesn't rule her out, it just puts her in the category of an unlikely suspect for me. A lot of people ask me if Jim ever clarified whether he believes the unsub was male or female. And Jim never made a declaration one way or the other on the show. I did speak with him later and asked him about this, and he said most likely it was a male, just based on the physical strength required to manually strangle someone, to hit her hard enough on the head to knock her unconscious, to carry a body and move her. He said that he would lean towards a male, but there's no way that he could absolutely make that determination. He can't rule out a female. With all this information considered together, I personally would not put Jen into that overlapping category. I don't think that the investigation points towards her. I don't think she fits the profile. She didn't have a known relationship with Hay. I don't see any obvious motives that would equate to revenge or rage. And again, like Jay, it doesn't mean that she's completely ruled out, but I wouldn't put her in that overlapping position of attention and focus in the case, at this point at least. A lot of people have suggested Hay's family, and most of that was based on Jim's mention of the possibility of an honor killing in the Korean culture. And as Jim said in the interview, it's something that needs to be mentioned, but he sees no evidence of that whatsoever. And personally, neither do I. And that's just not a concept that I'm willing to entertain right now unless there's significant reason to do so. I think that it would be completely insensitive to the family to even entertain such an idea. I do not believe this had anything to do with Hayes' family. That's my personal belief. That doesn't mean that that's not a belief you can entertain, but unless I have significant evidence pointing in that direction, this will be the last time that I will discuss this on the show. And that's no disrespect to any of you. It's just my personal position. I don't see any evidence indicating that, and therefore it's too sensitive of a topic to even be discussed. So what we're left with, or I should say what I'm left with, because this is just my opinion. I believe that there are only two suspects that overlap with our investigation and Jim's preliminary profile. And those two suspects would be Adnan and Don. And so what does that mean? It means that we start the investigation from this point by taking a closer look at those two suspects to figure out if we can rule them out or if they require further investigation. After the episode aired on Sunday, Jim called me. And all of you will be very happy to know that Jim is invested in helping us solve this murder. Now understand that Jim does have an extremely busy schedule. He's juggling many, many projects right now. But he's intent on doing his best to help us in any way that he can. And I can't tell you how excited I am that he's willing to do that. This is an incredible blessing to all of us to have someone with this level of expertise that's willing to help us get to the bottom of this. And I'd ask that any of you who happen to be on Twitter that are as excited about this as I am, take a minute to let Jim know how much you appreciate what he's doing. His Twitter handle is at Jim Clemente. So when I talked to Jim on Sunday, before I discussed any of the case information with him, my first question is, where do we go from here? And he explained to me the process that I just explained to you about how this is just a method to narrow down your field of suspects and give you a starting point. And he said the next step you take is to identify anyone that fits our investigation and fits his preliminary profile. He said that once you've identified those people, the next step is to evaluate their alibis. And again, I want to stress to you that Jim knows nothing about what we're doing. This was his advice on how to proceed. Identify suspects and investigate their alibis to see if there's anyone that we can cross off the list. And we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, let's explore the alibis of the two suspects who fit the preliminary profile. We'll start with Adnan. The most commonly accepted time frame for Hayes' abduction was between 2.25 p.m. and 3.15 p.m. on January 13, 1999. So where was Adnan during that time? First, we go to Adnan's own statement. Adnan says that he didn't leave the campus that day, he probably checked his email, and then he went to track practice. And that's it. During that period of time, Anon isn't crystal clear about exactly what he was doing or where he was on that day, other than from his statement stating that it was a normal day, he didn't leave school, and he went to track practice. So the next step is corroborating the alibi. So the first thing that we look for is do we have any evidence that would show that Anon was doing something other than what he said he was doing? Did anyone see him get into Hay's car? Did anyone see him leaving with her? Did anyone even see him with her after school? And the answer to that question is no. Many people saw Hay after school, but no one saw her with Adnan. Now, we do have Jay's testimony that, of course, says that Adnan got a ride from Hay and murdered her in the Best Buy parking lot. I'm going to call Jay's testimony unreliable. Of course, we know that his story has changed many times, and that Trunk Pop location has changed many times, and his recollection of the events of the day have changed many, many times. So I'm going to call it unreliable, but we're not going to throw it away. We're going to put a pin in that. So we have one witness that says they know where Adnan was, and that was murdering Hay. So the next step is to see if we have anything that we can find that may contradict that testimony. Do we have any alibi witnesses? There are three alibi witnesses that I want to discuss. The first one is Asia McLean. Asia says that she was with Adnan in the library from after school until about 2.40 p.m. Through her sworn affidavit, she says that Adnan was in the library after school working on the computer. They carried on a conversation until her boyfriend came in to pick her up. She left with her boyfriend about 2.40 p.m. Now, the problem with witness statements is they can be unreliable, especially when they're given weeks after an event occurred and even more so when you're dealing with someone like a high school student who has basically the same routine day in and day out. It's very easy to confuse one day with the next. So is Asia's testimony reliable? When you evaluate Asia's testimony, you see that it was brought to light just a couple of days after Anand was arrested. When she had seen that Anand was arrested on the news, she wrote him a letter in jail. This is the first week of March, so nearly two months after the date of Hayes' murder. She says in the letter that she remembers seeing him in the library that day. But how can we be sure she has the right day? Well, the thing is, this wasn't a normal day for Asia. She has specific events that have helped her recall that day. The first thing was that she was pissed at her boyfriend. Her boyfriend was supposed to pick her up long before 240. She was mad at him because he was late. And consequently, when he picked her up, he was mad at her because she was talking to Adnan. So when they left, They were arguing. She's pissed because he was late. He's pissed because she was talking to Anon. She says that argument went on through the night, and she was even further pissed because she wanted to leave, and she couldn't because the ice storm came in that night, and she got snowed into her boyfriend's house. This ice storm shut down power through a lot of the Baltimore area. The roads were terrible. They weren't prepared for it, and she was stuck there. Now, in my opinion, if Asia has no motivation to lie and she's making an honest attempt at telling the truth, it's very likely that she does have the right day because she has specific, memorable events that have helped solidify that memory for her. And without going to it in depth on the show, you can just do some quick research online about how events like that help solidify a memory for you. So we have one alibi witness that says that she saw Adnan until about 240 after school in the library the second alibi witness is debbie you remember from a few episodes back that in debbie's police statement she originally said that she was in her words positive that she saw a non in the guidance counselor's office around 245 on january 13th she said she saw him in the guidance counselor's office with his gym bag getting ready to go to track she wasn't sure why he was there but she specifically remembers seeing him there Now, throughout the course of her interview, she did eventually change her statement to say that she's not positive and maybe she has the wrong day. And as I mentioned before, any witness statement taken months after the fact could easily be confused with other days. So maybe Debbie has the right day and maybe she doesn't. But there's another piece to that statement that may play an important role. The guidance counselor testified that she had printed out a letter of recommendation for Adnan on January 13th, and she had left it in her office for Adnan to pick up. That letter of recommendation, dated January 13th, was recovered by the police in Adnan's possession. Is that a smoking gun of innocence? I don't think that we can say that, but it certainly takes leaps towards corroborating Debbie's statement. She says she saw Adnan in the guidance counselor's office after school. The guidance counselor says she left a letter for Adnan to pick up in her office after school, and that letter was found in Adnan's possession. So again, this is not concrete, but certainly seems more likely than not that Adnan was in the guidance counselor's office after school on that day. So Asia alibis Adnan until 2.40 p.m. Debbie alibis Adnan from about 2.45 p.m. to about 3 p.m. And that leads us to our third alibi witness, Adnan's track coach, Coach Sai. So remember, Anand says that he would have stayed on campus, probably checked his email, and then went to track practice. When Coach Sai was questioned about whether or not Adnan was at track practice that day, he said that he couldn't be sure. He said that as a rule, he doesn't take attendance. But he thinks that he would have remembered if Adnan was late or missing on a certain day. He went on to say that he does remember a day in January. It was a warm day, over 50 degrees, during Ramadan, where Adnan was at track practice, on time, and Coach Sai walked around the track with Adnan. During their walk, they discussed Ramadan and prayers that Adnan would be leading at the mosque. So again, witness testimonies are not always the most reliable. But in this case, we have a witness who has a specific event that is helping solidify his memory. He remembers it being a warm day because they could only practice outside if the temperatures were over 50 degrees. So that day stood out to him, because they got to actually practice outside that day. He remembers walking with Adnan, and Adnan was walking because it was during Ramadan and he was fasting, and Coach Sai didn't make Adnan run when he was fasting, and he remembers Adnan talking about prayers that he would be leading at the mosque. Well, the police never went any further with this, as far as we know. But luckily enough... This information is very simple for us to track. If you pull up the historical weather data for Baltimore during Ramadan in January of 1999, you'll see that there is only one single day that matches Coach Sai's description. There's only one day during Ramadan when non would have been fasting, where the temperatures were over 50 degrees, and they would have been practicing outside. The only day that fits that description is, was January 13th. Having that information now, I am very confident in saying that Adnan was at track, on time, on January 13th, just like he said he was. And beyond that, according to Coach Sai, acting perfectly normal, having a conversation about Ramadan and prayers at the mosque. So this is the totality of Adnan's alibi. Remember, the police didn't question anybody else about his alibi. Unfortunately, the police didn't bother to talk to any of the track team members, the librarian, or anyone else that could confirm this alibi, or prove it wrong for that matter. So where was Adnan on january thirteenth, nineteen ninety nine, from after school until three hundred fifteen PM when Hay was supposed to pick up her cousin? Agent McLean says that he was in the library until about two hundred forty. In my opinion, her testimony is very strong because it is tied to specific events that helped her remember it. Debbie says that Adnan was in the guidance counselor's office with his track bag, getting ready to go to track from about 2.45 to about 3 o'clock. Now, her memory is not quite as strong as it's not tied into any particular events. However, we do have a possible corroboration because the guidance counselor says she left a note in the office for Adnan to pick up that day, and Adnan did have that note dated January 13th in his possession. Either one of those two things may not be strong alibi material by themselves, but when you put them together, it makes a fairly strong case for Debbie's statement. And almost certainly, if not absolutely certainly, Coach Sai confirms that Adnan was at track practice on time acting normal on January 13th. When we compare that to Adnan's own statement of alibi, all of these statements corroborate what he said, that he never left the campus, he would have checked his email, and went to track practice. Furthermore, we have the fact that Hay was seen by multiple people after school that day. This was a crowded campus with a very tight-knit group of students. No one, not one single person, saw Adnan in Hay's car, saw Adnan get into Hay's car, saw Adnan leaving with Hay, or even saw Adnan anywhere near Hay on January 13th after school. In fact, all of the statements consistently say that Hay had told them that she was in a rush and she had somewhere to be. In fact, Debbie testified in her police interview that Hay's friend Takira asked her for a ride after school and Hay told her that she couldn't give her a ride because something had come up and she was in a hurry and she had to leave. Now, to be fair, in one part of Debbie's interview, she mentions that Hay had a wrestling meet that night. And we do know that Hay did not have a wrestling meet that night. So it is certainly possible that Debbie has the wrong day. Now, I do have some theories as far as how or why Debbie might have thought that Hay had a wrestling meet that day. Remember, this is over two months after the murder when Debbie gives this statement. We know that Inez Butler at some point changed her testimony to say that Hay had a wrestling meet that day. In her initial statement, she mentioned nothing about the wrestling meet. We also know that Hay's co-manager on the wrestling team had confused the day and thought it was the day that Hay had a wrestling meet. So it's possible that Debbie's memory of the wrestling meet didn't come from Hay or didn't come from her memory of that day, but rather came from rumors that were spread around the school in the months following her murder. But we don't know for sure, and so we have to say that it's possible that Debbie has the wrong day. But altogether, we have one single statement that contradicts Anand's alibi, and that is the statement of Jay Wilds. In an attempt to look at this from an unbiased perspective, if I was investigating this case, and I had one person telling me that Anand had gotten a ride with Hay and murdered her and made a phone call by 2.36 p.m., and I compared that to Anand's own statement of alibi and the three witnesses that corroborate his alibi, and then couple that with the fact that no one who was actually at the school saw Adnan with hay, even though many people saw hay after school that day, my conclusion would be that Adnan's alibi holds true and Jay Wilde's is lying. And with that information, I would rule Adnan out as a suspect. So going back to the beginning of the show and my email from Rhonda, Rhonda, I hope that answers your question as to why I'm 100% convinced that Adnan is innocent. The reason is that other than Jay's testimony, all other evidence points to the fact that Adnan never left the campus that day, and therefore could not have committed this crime. And any of you can agree or disagree with me, but I stand by my statement that Adnan Syed could not have committed this crime, and is ruled out as a suspect based on a corroborated alibi. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So next we move on to our only other suspect that fits the investigation and fits the profile. Don. So first we go to Don's statement of alibi. On January 22nd, Don tells the police that on January 13th, he was working. He tells the detective that he was scheduled to be off that day but he filled in a shift for another person at the Hunt Valley crafter store. So do we have any witnesses that corroborate Don's statement of alibi? The only witness that we have on record corroborating Don's alibi is the manager at the Owings Mills crafter store, his home store. And as we know now, that manager was Don's stepmother. So Don's stepmother tells Detective O'Shea that Don was working at the Hunt Valley store, and she reads off the times from the timesheet. She says that he punched in at 9.02, took a lunch break from 1.10 to 1.40, and that he punched out at 6 p.m. And it's at this point that Detective O'Shea rules Don out as a suspect. Now, before I go any further with Don's alibi, I want to take a quick minute to give Detective O'Shea a break. There are a lot of people that are really angry that this information wasn't caught in 1999. And I just want to say on the record that I do not fault Detective O'Shea for this mistake. In fact, I wouldn't even call it a mistake. If I put myself in his shoes as an investigator investigating the alibi of a suspect, and that suspect tells me that he was working from 9 to 6 p.m., and I call his boss, and his boss confirms that he was working and reads the exact times off of a timesheet to me, I would rule that suspect out. There is no way in a million years that I would think this might be a family member covering for him. Personally, I think that Detective O'Shea did a fair job of investigating this missing person's investigation. He followed logical steps. While he may not have brought in a behavioral analysis unit, he did make a very basic profile himself. Statistical probability would say that a violent crime against a woman would most likely be perpetrated by either her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. Remember, Detective O'Shea didn't run out and arrested Adnan. He investigated Don. In fact, if you look at the records, he investigated Don first. I think Don was his number one suspect. He sent patrol units out the night she went missing around Don's neighborhood. He contacted Don on the 22nd. He called to verify his alibi on the 1st. He hadn't done any of this with Adnan yet, prior to February 1st. Now, something to put another pin in is the fact that that also happens to be the day that the Crime Stoppers tip was received and we'll talk about that on a later episode. Would it have been nice if Detective O'Shea had went to the Hunt Valley store and spoken to those employees? Yes, and I wish to God that he had done that. But at the same time, I can't fault him for not doing that. Police forces are typically understaffed and overworked and only have so many resources to work with. I can't see any police agency or any detective continuing to waste resources investigating a subject that appears to have an airtight alibi. So let's give Detective O'Shea a break. Now getting back to Don, we have the statement from his stepmom slash manager that says that he was working and confirms his alibi statement. However, as all of you know, it has been confirmed, and I know there's people out there, a very small percentage of people, but they're out there, that continue to say that there's no proof of this and that it hasn't been confirmed and you're welcome to believe what you want, but I will say it has absolutely been confirmed. Dozens of LensCrafters employees, general managers, LensCrafters corporate, unanimously, every single one of them that I've spoken to, confirms that there is no other explanation for that Hunt Valley timesheet other than it was intentionally falsified. And it is also true that there is no possible way that the Owings Mills manager didn't know that it was falsified. There is no way, no chance, zero possibility, that she had access to that timesheet through her system. And any means that she would have to go through to find the timesheet would have immediately notified her that it was falsified. And you can argue that until you're blue in the face. It is a fact. It's also important to note that I did contact Don prior to airing that episode and let him know about this situation and asked him if I had it wrong, and he declined to comment. Before I aired the episode revealing the fact that the Owings Mills manager was Don's stepmom, I contacted her, and I explained to her all of the information that we have uncovered, and I explained to her how the information was verified, and offered for her to explain the situation and clear things up if I got it wrong. She also declined to comment. I have also sent multiple messages through many different methods to Don's mother with the same information. And I can't say that she declined to comment because I have no confirmation as to whether or not she received the messages. All I know is that I never heard back from her. So at least I can tell you that I have done my best to give Don and his mother and his stepmother the opportunity to tell another side of this story if there is one. And at least Don and his stepmother have declined to do so. So all we know at this point is that Don states that he was working on January 13th. And we know that that was a lie. I can absolutely confirm that Don was not working on January 13th, 1999. And I can also confirm through my sources, one of which you heard on the air here a few episodes back, that the false timesheet had to have been created before Don was ever interrogated or interviewed by the police. So where does that leave us? By following Jim Clemente's model, I've narrowed down a suspect pool to individuals that fit into our investigation and that overlap with the preliminary profile that he came up with. That left us with two suspects, Anon and Don. Now again, that doesn't mean you slap handcuffs on either one of these two. It just means we take the next step, which is to investigate their alibis and determine whether or not either of them can be ruled out. In my opinion, Anon's alibi is corroborated by everyone except Jay Wilds. And Don not only does not have an alibi, it is now known that he intentionally lied and forged documents to falsify an alibi. With this information, and working through this investigative process, I cannot rule out Don as a suspect. And given the totality of everything that we know to this point, in my opinion, that makes Don suspect number one. So where do we go from here? In my discussions with Jim, he said the next step is to evaluate post-crime behavior of any suspects that remain. And what that means is Jim wants to evaluate everything that we know about the behavior after the crime was committed of any of the suspects that remain. And he is in the process of doing that right now. Jim has the entire case file, and so do I. And we are picking through every single shred of evidence, every statement that relates to behavior after the crime was committed. Now, since everyone is not absolutely 100% convinced of Adnan's alibi, even though my opinion is that he does have a solid corroborated alibi, I'm including Adnan in this follow-up evaluation. So over the next several weeks, Jim and I will be working through, suspect by suspect, their post-crime behavior. Given our schedules, I don't know when he will be returning to the show. So you may hear Jim pop in and out to discuss some of these behaviors, or you may just hear me relaying Jim's findings. At some point, Jim will most likely return to the show to discuss all of this, and I'm hoping that we can have him on several times as we go forward in this investigation. But as a three-hour time difference and busy schedules seem to land us on 1 a.m. interview times, I just can't guarantee how often or when Jim will be on. Now, there is one other person that I didn't mention that Jim wants to evaluate. This person is the anomaly, the monkey wrench, that confuses all of the known evidence of this case. If his statements are true, then nothing else makes sense. Jim wants to evaluate every statement, every behavior, every taped interview of Jay Wilds. Given the track that we're on now, I think that we're closer to the truth than we have ever been. For all of you that have been so engaged and so involved throughout this process, this is not the time to fall back on our heels. The truth is right there in front of us, and we're about to go get it. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for creating our logo. Thank you to today's sponsor, Ever Album, for funding the program today. And as always, thank all of you listeners for all of your support in every way that you've provided it. Please keep in touch by emailing me your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. That's theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Please follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod or check out the Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff Facebook page. You can always listen to all of our episodes on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. As always, I love hearing from each and every one of you. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.